Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. On this final episode of season two, my guest is Sheila Nevins, the president of HBO Documentary Films. In the 1980s, when documentary was associated with boring content, Sheila was a force of change, and she's been at it ever since. I feel grateful that real people have a place in the sun and that you don't have to have an agent and a star, that you can do it with your cell phone, that you can knock on the door of a nursing home, tell the story of your grandmother who's dying or living or falling in love again, um, and that you don't have to, um, you know, to be a star to tell a good story. That's the genius of docus, and I guess that's why the anonymous star is the one that I treasure the most. She's supervised over a 1,000 documentaries for HBO. Some are independent productions that she acquired, others she commissioned from the start. She initiated two films featured on previous episodes of this podcast, Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures, about photographer Robert Maplethorpe, and Nothing Left Unsaid, about Gloria Vanderbilt and her son, Anderson Cooper. I've known Sheila for 20 years, ever since she acquired the first documentary that I produced. More about that later. She's known for speaking her mind, and she didn't act differently whether my recorder was on or off. I have had a great opportunity at HBO, and that's not to suck up to my bosses because I'm too old now to give a shit about that. We met in her office on Manhattan's Upper East Side. The windows have a panoramic view of the river, but usually the blinds are closed while she screens films in the dark. I wanted to start at the beginning of her career. I asked what she was looking for when she got into television. Money. I was looking for a salary. I was not born into any trust fund, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, actually. And I, I needed a job. And I had just gotten out of the Yale Drama School where I had majored in directing, and I tried to get a job. Theater has always been my first love. And um, I tried to get a job directing in the theater, but it was the 60s, and... There was no such thing. And I married a very square, I guess, I don't even know if he's still alive. I hope not, if he's listening. But I married a rather square Yale lawyer at the time because I used to do all these mood court things at the drama school and play different parts. And and um, I didn't know what to do when I got out because I couldn't get a job in the theater. So I got married, and um, he wanted me home at night, and he wanted me home on weekends. And there wasn't much theater in Washington, D.C., where we lived at the time. And the only job I could get was a television teaching English on television. So I started teaching English on television. And it was, you know, I had never had a television set. I didn't even know what the word documentary meant. But here I was doing something for television that was going to go overseas teaching people um, English. And it was based on a thousand, a thousand or twelve hundred word vocabulary. And for two years, I did this with a professor whose name was Richards, Professor Richards, and my name was Jean. And we each day we did three words, so it was like a Beckett play. We had to make a conversation out of, let's say, moon, star, and cap, and this, it would come off the big television camera, and it would say, "Good morning, Professor Richards. Did you see the moon last night?" He said, no, I was milking the cow. That was the kind of conversation we had. And we had to repeat each thing six to nine times. So it was surreal. 
And I thought, you know, this is a little like theater because it's like, maybe it's significant to use the same words again and again. And Don Misha was the director. And then Don came to New York to work on The Great American Dream Machine. The Great American Dream Machine was a project of New York's public TV station, NET, in 1971. It was an unhosted variety show composed of sketches. It was a documentary special in a strange way. It was, um, it, it was an adventure in real people acting out their stories in short segments. And most of it was based on their dreams and their aspirations. And, you know, I was a researcher. At first I was in a something. I don't know what I was. Then I was a researcher. Then I was an associate producer. And then we didn't have any money to do to get a well-known correspondent to host it. So Al Perlmutter, who was my boss, this was 100 years ago, said, How, what are we going to do to link these pieces together? And we had this great title. It wasn't mine, The Great American Dream Machine. And I said, why don't I just go out with these famous people called the Maisels who did this thing called Salesmen in the Bible. They're great, like they're dramatic. They're so interesting. Let me call them and we'll go out on the street and we'll ask people what their dreams are. And that was the beginning of my love affair with real people. And that was the beginning of knowing every single, we didn't have much money, knowing every store on 72nd Street. Uh, we started at Central Park West, and we kept going west. So we did men on the start of Central Park, then we kept going west, 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 west. There were restaurants, supermarkets, beauty shops, um, all kinds of stores. And we'd walk in and out, we didn't even know, and I hired the Maisels. <laughs> I just called them up, and Al said, how much? And I said, you know, Perlmutter, how much? And he said, what do they want? And I said, what do you want? And it turned out we could afford them because they wanted to do something short. Right. Because they were moving into commercials, and the money was there, and they wanted to show they could do short things. I didn't know the difference. I was so scared of them and so comfortable with real people that I thought, Jesus, these people, like when they tell their stories, they're like, as good as actors. Hmm. You know, like one woman lost a child. Her dream was that her child, that she'd see her one day. Uh, she had had infant death syndrome. And, you know, one person was getting married. One woman caught her husband doing something wicked. You know, one man was, you know, had had a heart attack and he was afraid to have sex. It was like the most interesting 72nd Street. And um, that's what I did. That's how I got into docus. The brothers, Albert and David Maisels, who made Salesman, Gimme Shelter, and other classic docs, have come up before on pure nonfiction. Since many people describe the Maisels as warm and nurturing, I asked Sheila why they intimidated her. Now, I'm often intimidated by people that I think have something that I don't have. Um, first of all, the cameras were so big, the audio was actual tape. David kept falling asleep in the back of the car. Like, as soon as we take a break, um, he would fall asleep. Al was, you know, we didn't have cell phones then, so people had to talk to each other. Al was talking about what he was doing next, and, you know, like, I was, like, scared to death. It was the first time I'd ever gone out alone with anybody, and the chutzpah to have suggested them, and then the luck to have gotten them, um, was, it was just, a, it was like a crash course in docu. Were you able to take the experience you had doing that and 
tr- transform it into something else? Totally understood that anonymous people could be the best theater there could ever be. And that the way an ordinary person would survive the crisis of life, the joys of life, the end of life, the sicknesses of life, um, was as theatrical as anything else. And that the television set, in its own way, which is why I think I have to watch television in the dark, was theater. Hmm. That the, this glass tube, which is what it was then, and with only one way of delivery at that time, um, was theater. And that I really had not left theater, but that I had would have to find stories that would be as theatrical from real life as plays that I would have wanted to direct or been involved in bringing to the stage. Hmm. So that was the beginning. Then where were you in your career when you joined HBO? I was a child. I was an infant. Um, I was working at CBS on a show called Who's Who, which was about celebrities. And I had just done um, Diane von Furstenberg. I did the wrap dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Hewitt, who was my boss, sent me out to do girly pieces. Then he sent me out to do um, Lily Tomlin, who was doing a one-woman show. And I cannot tell you how terrifying. It was so terrifying. Um, and then... Terrifying, why? Because I'm terrified by fame. Hmm. I, you know, just think I'm not good enough, not smart enough. I'll ask the stupid thing. They'll think I'm stupid. Um, I, I don't know. I never got over that. I guess I'm mentally disturbed. But I <laughs> think that... Um, I know how hard the climb is, so someone who's on top of the ladder intimidates me. Hmm. They just do. And um, Well, it's funny because I, I believe when you when you say you're intimidated, but obviously you also have a certain amount of confidence and chutzpah oh, yeah, that yeah. allowed you but, to move ahead. But to overcome the intimidation, I have a very great kind of pluck, and uh, I refuse to be intimidated. I start being intimidated. And then I realized, you know, when you cut them, they bleed. I guess I learned something at the Yale Drama School. I got very comfortable. I get very comfortable with stars or with well-known people after the initial anxiety. But, I mean, when I did the Gloria Steinem docu, I shouldn't say I, when we did the Gloria uh, Steinem thing and I was going to interview her, I didn't sleep for almost a week. Hmm. And then after 15 minutes of talking to her, she was so extraordinary that I wasn't frightened anymore. And when we did the 9-11 show and I had to interview Rudy Giuliani, I mean, you know, whatever he's become, he was a hero then. And um, I was so terrified that my teeth were actually chattering. I had to put my finger on my upper teeth so <laughs> that they wouldn't click. You know, I sort of stayed like this the whole time so that I could, you know, I had a, and I heard later when we put the film together that my voice sounded like this. <laughs> and someone said, what's wrong with your audio? And I said, oh, it's a long story. It goes back to my childhood. You know, anyway. She described the audience that Sheila just had her thumb in her mouth. <laughs> well, so that brings me back to, you know, when you started HBO, you'd, you'd been doing this stuff. Oh, for- okay. I'll tell you exactly the day that I started HBO. It was in the late 70s. Uh, Don Hewitt had said my pieces were very good, but he wanted me to audition to be an on-camera personality on 60 Minutes, or Who's Who, at the time it was Who's Who. And I did not want to, to do that. And I was... Now, dis- now why dis- is that? Most people want to be on TV. I can't answer it. I just didn't want the visibility. I wasn't interested in telling anything. 
and I didn't want to be recognized. I wanted to be secretly good at what I did. I didn't want to be, and I, I never wanted to be an actress. I, everybody who heard that I went to the Yale Drama School thought I was young and pretty and all thought I wanted to be an actress. And um, I never wanted that. I wanted to be a director, but that was not possible. And Don wanted me to be on camera and interview celebrities and stuff and audition with Candace Bergen and Leslie Stahl and all these famous people that became famous people. And I didn't want to do it. And um, I heard about this thing called HBO. And they were looking for someone to direct documentaries. So I thought I was going to be a director of documentaries. And I wasn't sure what they were, but anyway, um, I looked through my, we had Rolodexes then, I looked through my Rolodex <laughs> for people I could recommend, and I made a list. And I thought, what is that HBO thing? And so I went to the 42nd Street Library because I knew I couldn't stay at CBS because I didn't think Don would give me pieces to do. He wasn't going to send me to Egypt to do a piece. He, he just wasn't. Which you would have liked to have done more of that. I think maybe had the challenge been... Uh, not just celebrity to celebrity, I think then I would have been happier. Like I did Richard Burton, um, and that was the last piece I did for CBS. And I realized I had done Diane, Lily, and Richard Burton, and I just didn't want to do... Um, does it matter if my phone rings? No. I, I think that had I been offered something that was geographically challenging, not celebrity stuff, maybe... I, I can't really say. I didn't want to be... I didn't, want to, I didn't want people to say, oh, I saw you on television yesterday. I didn't want to do that. Um, so I heard about HBO, and I was looking for people to work at HBO, and I was in a quandary about CBS. Which HBO at this time, it's cable, it's It was brand eight new. hours. The only thing I knew about cable was they had a dirty show. I saw a dirty show with some woman, you know, I can't remember her name, but she was on late at night. I didn't know much. I, my mother didn't allow me to have a television set. I didn't own a television set. I didn't know anything. And I went across the street to um, the 42nd Street Library. And I looked up what home box office was, and I realized it was a division of Time Life. And I was a great fan of Life magazine. I loved Life magazine. And I used to learn everything I knew to say on dates from Time magazine. <laughs> so between Time and Life and HBO, I thought, well, I'll be directing documentaries. I won't be on camera. And that sounds interesting. So it's only a 13-week job. So I'll try it. Rather than recommend somebody else, I'll try that. So that was the genesis of HBO. And then I got there. It was eight hours a day. They were doing rodeos, ro comedy shows. Um, I don't remember what they were doing. And then I thought a documentary. I actually looked it up in an actual encyclopedia because I wasn't sure what it was. And it said you document historical things. You know, so I did Winston Churchill, Hitler, uh, you know, the Hitler Jung Jungenfraud. Um, well, hang on a second. You've yeah. been working with the Maisels. I mean, didn't that give you a, a context for, no, for the because, documentary? No, because I was doing colloquial New York stories. You know, I, I thought of them more as um, short stories about real people. I didn't think of that as documentary. I knew they made documentaries. I never presumed that I could ever, one, carry this big camera, two, do the sound, three, uh, be Susan Fromke. I just Susan Fromke is a director who had a long collaboration with the Maisels. I didn't think that was for me. I didn't know what it was. I mean, I knew it was called documentary, but suddenly I was the director of documentaries. But when I arrived at HBO, I realized I wasn't directing documentaries. I was the director of documentaries, <laughs> which meant that I had to tell people 
to make the documentary. So that's when I figured out, well, what is a documentary? Uh, and it was, I thought it was history. So I did Churchill, and as I said, I did Churchill, you know, all these famous people. Um, Those from were the history. first documentaries you were putting on yes. air, right? And then we did Dick Cavett in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. I, I thought it was history. And then I noticed very clearly that my shows were, we had something then called Total Subscriber Satisfaction, which was a number. Uh -huh. I'm really into numbers. Mm -hmm. I like to win. <laughs> and my numbers were very low. But things like uh, War of the Roses, which was about divorce and screaming at each other, was doing very well. And uh, Jaws was doing very, very well. And I thought, well, why don't I copy those with real things? Like, why don't I do sharks? I think we did sharks. Why don't I do killer tigers? Why don't I do divorce? Why don't I do adultery? Why don't I do documentaries about real things, real people, real time today, not then? And I thought, well, why don't I copy those with real things? So if it was murder, you know, I did murder. Criminals. I began to love criminals. I began to love crime. I began to love deadly animals, plagues. Divorce, interrelationships that ended in terrible things, you know, bodies that told stories, autopsies. Um, I just shifted whatever the public was interested in into real life. And that was, the, that was Sheila. We'll be back in a minute with more from Sheila Nevins. Pure Nonfiction will take a break until January when season three begins. Until then, I hope you'll explore our back catalog. On episode four, I interviewed the filmmakers of the HBO documentary Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. Director Fenton Bailey describes profiling the controversial photographer who many people found unlikable. I think we were ambivalent. Uh, I think several times we went to each other and was like, oh, do we? Do we really want to be doing this, you know? But then the revelation, and this is what's so exciting about making a documentary, because it really is a journey of discovery. The revelation was that he was so honest about what he was doing, even if it was at his own expense, even if it meant people wouldn't like him. And I think he was like a beacon of documentary art, you know? he. It wasn't just that he took these amazing pictures. It was also that he wanted he wanted the pictures and his story to be told because the ultimate work of art was Robert's life. And he said that, you know, the life he is leading is more important than the pictures he was taking. You can hear that interview and more when you subscribe to Pure Nonfiction for free on iTunes. Now back to Sheila Nevins, describing when she first settled into her job at HBO. And who were the filmmakers that you were forming well, relationships with? Well, I only knew with? the famous ones because I didn't know, I didn't experiment because I was terrified that I would be doing it wrong. At the Maisels, Koppel, Penny Baker. You know, I took the names that were out there and I tried to learn from them. And they were lovely teachers. Mm. And they were so pure in what they did that I was sometimes ashamed of the curly cues I would put on reality, you know, and I got more honest because of them. Uh, 
you know, we did something on um, hospice with Al Mazels, and I remembered watching this young child die for like 36 hours sitting in a house, and Al would not move. And we did something on abortion, and Al would just, I mean, he was the most extraordinary cameraman, and he taught me so much about being patient with reality Hmm. because I was used to edited reality. I would highly edit everything we did so it would be as close to a um, movie as possible. But he taught me, and I actually never thought of it before, that if you wait long enough, you get something better than that. Hmm. And um, even though I'm an extremely impatient person, I became more patient with storytelling, realizing that I could abridge it later but that I should let it happen as it would naturally happen. And then I got a little more experimental. The docus started to do well. Nobody else was doing them. Uh, the networks were doing docus about the government and about uh, the CIA. And, you know, occasionally they go to an Indian reservation and do hunger, you know, but that was very rare. Mostly they were political. And, um, you know, that was... Right. I mean, I think of the... The 1990s, when I entered this business... Were you even born in the 1990s? <laughs> well, I, 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 my documentary career was born at your hands uh, in... Uh, <gasps> we did breasts. That's right. And then we did dicks. In 1997, that's right. <laughs> In 1994, I had moved to New York and teamed up with another aspiring filmmaker, Mima Spadola. We wanted to make a documentary, but I had zero experience, and Mima had just a little bit more. She had an idea to interview women about their breasts that would explore puberty, motherhood, sex, cancer, and aging. Okay, they are breasts, they are titties, they are boobs, they are them, because they are a separate entity. They are a monster within themselves. Hooters, 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 uh, boobs, and boobies. They are melons, they are watermelons, they are cantaloupes. Snack trays, snack trays. Baby bottles. Watermelons, boobs, knockers. Balls. Tomatoes. Bazongas. I kind of like that because it has kind of like a conga rhythm to it. The puppies with the pink noses. Mima directed with an all-women crew, and I produced. We hoped it would play some film festivals. As a long shot, I sent a rough cut to Sheila Nevins, and she bought it. Suddenly, we had a budget, lawyers, publicists, and a national broadcast. The show aired on HBO's sister channel, Cinemax, and drew a high rating. I naively thought I could choose my next project, but Sheila was hardly interested in my pitches. She wanted us to make a sequel about men called Private Dicks. I began it reluctantly, but came away pleased with the results. The interviews ranged from boastful to self-deprecating like this one. When in reality, the penis, of course, is the most heinous-looking device in the universe. It's like a beanbag. It's completely grotesque. I mean, some sculptors have made wonders with it, but let's face it. Usually, it isn't even colored right. It's wrinkly. It's hairy. You wouldn't buy it in a store. You certainly, people aren't going to jump on it. I'd like to apologize to everybody there. Tom made me do it. (laughs) I would never have thought of that. Yes, because breasts did well. Breasted well. And then, so I and, figured, well, you know, let's find the equal. Exactly. Here I thought. Like, Did I actually call you and tell you to do this? Yeah. you. Uh, you I uh, called you and said, do penises? 
a hundred percent. And uh, yeah. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I thought. Well, I continued we, we, we the breast produced... and penis thing for many, many. Years. <laughs> I mean, I did real sex as an independent producer because uh, I had a small child then, and I wanted to work from home. And um, it was I first I started on Cinemax because no one wanted to put penises and breasts on HBO, and I did a show called Eros America, and it did very, very well. Um, but it always did well after 10 minutes, and I never could figure out why. And so then we used to research our shows. We would go out into the field to everywhere America. And we were in San Diego or somewhere uh, testing Eros America. And some guy said, you know, he said, you know, I love this show. I watch it every time it's on. He said, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what an Eros was. <laughs> so that's where the name Real Sex came from. So we started to call Eros America Real Sex, and it started to do very well, and we migrated it into HBO, and it was very popular for many years. I've done whorehouses. I've done women on the street, working girls. Well, I can remember a conversation mm-hmm. I had with you after we'd done Brass and Private Dicks. Uh, oh, God, what was my, I looking for? Then, then I came to you with a proposal... I thought, okay, well, I've done the two sex documentaries. Tom, you've now, done very well with that. Now it's time for, you know, me to do another film that I want to do. And I had an idea of, called Wait Until Christmas. It would be set at a shopping mall in outside Detroit where I grew up. And we'd follow people from Thanksgiving to Christmas and, uh, and really get into their lives. And you, I came to you and I gave you this idea and Was you said I awake when you told me this idea you said I want I, I said you said I want you to do a film called first time uh, yeah, right. interviewing people that sounds like me <laughs> right. and did you do it uh, I did the proposal reel and uh, and then it got spiked um, but you, know you said but yeah. you said to me that you said you know you want to do the social issue documentary I have other people who do social issue documentaries oh, that's interesting. you do your sexy confessional documentaries and you do them really well and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't try to get you to do another one that's interesting god I was smart once you were right uh, yeah you were but right you know I'll tell you something about sex I think that the docus on HBO and their success the sex docus leaked into a uh, series and really change everything says oh docus to hbo said docus and all that i think one of our contributions because there were great docus way before hbo but i think the introduction of sex openly and honestly with no one getting hurt by it was i think one of the major contributions of the hbo docu i would agree i would say that harlan county and films like that were much better than anything that i ever came up with and they were way before i started so I think the introduction of sex as okay, you know, I went to an auction once and I bought the four Eros books, um, and that was the genesis of the sex, really the sex docus, and breasts, I think you brought to me, Yeah. Um, and it did so well, it was, you know, fabulous, we could probably do it again and it would do well. It's like Sesame Street sex. It, it, some of our old real sexes. Except it's, it's so seldom done in an interesting way. I don't know if we did it in an interesting way. We did it in a healthy way. Hmm. We hired a sex consultant, and uh, she explained to me in great care that sex was like food. And she made me read Freud, and I began to be proud of our sex shows. I began to think that this was a part of expression that was only in literature, really. You could read Henry Miller, you know, you could read Chaucer, you could read all kinds of things where people were hot and bothered, but you couldn't put that on television. You know, you, you would, even in fiction... 
there were not overt sexual scenes. Um, they would kind of black out and they, you know, and we had an opportunity to take it one step further. No child was hurt. There was not child pornography. We weren't doing that. We were very careful. If it was an S and M thing, there was always a stop sign where someone could stop it. It took me a while to get into the S and M thing because I, I used to say, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. But then I began to realize it was kind of like child's play. It was the war game of adults. It was an introduction to sex. And I, I had a good time with it. I learned a lot from these sex shows. I learned how repressed I'd been. I learned that it was a hole, if you'll pardon the expression, in television. And it was a job that HBO could do because we weren't selling good housekeeping in between the shows. And it was, it was you know, some yeah, but, of the best But I also, I also feel like when you were doing that, that you probably took some knocks that, like, that that wasn't serious. Yeah, I took a lot of knocks on the sex shows. But I had done so much reading. And I had this sex consultant, Shirley, I can't remember her last name, Dr. Shirley something, and she gave me the confidence hmm. that, that this repression was a sort of almost a religious kind of repression and that I had a right to make sex food for life. And I, when I think of the success of the cooking shows, that I, if you told me that, you know, that would be successful, I'd say, oh, please. But when you told me sex could be successful, I got it right away. So, but I think when she said that to me, sex is food, and you have a right to be a cook, you know, and chef it up, I, I, just, I just did it. And I kept doing them. And they were very successful. We did almost 100 sex shows. But now it's, everyone does it, so it's too late. You can't do it anymore. It's in fiction. It's in fact. It's in everything. You know, you, you talk about a lot of the fodder for your shows being people in extreme situations. When you're making entertainment in a way, documentary entertainment out of someone's divorce or death or, uh, you know, crisis moment, and then you, you know, put that on television, that's a real impact on, on the lives of the people who went through it. Well, they know what they're getting into. You're not telling someone who's dying that they're going to be going to a carousel ride to die in Oregon, which is one of, I think, one of our best docus, is about a woman who decides to take her life because she has extremes of liver cancer. And um, she stays with me always because it's about courage. Is it about death or is it about courage? Is it about a family or is it about her? It's, you know, very complicated, but it's certainly she knew what she was getting into. It has my favorite line in it. When the doctor comes to give her the cyanide, the doctor stands outside and it's snowing, and you hear the doctor's voice as she goes into the house, just through the window, and she says to the woman who wants to die, because she wants to be out of pain and she wants her family to go on living, she says to this dying woman, I'm so sorry I'm late. That's one of my favorite lines ever, <laughs> because late for what? Late for the end? Early for the end? Too early an end? Too late? Should she have done this days before? The day before she dies, she gets her hair blown dry. Um, she wants to be pretty for death, mm. and she's in terrible pain. She's got terrible edema. She's had liquid taken out of her body. She's really glorious. She's in her 50s, and she has two kids. Um, she gives away all her clothes the day before. I mean, what a glorious creature she was to face this. She wasn't going to heaven. She knew that. I asked her. She wasn't going to be by God's side. She was leaving forever. It's very touching, you know. 
Now, in all the range of documentaries you've done, you uh, put on films that kind of cover all kinds of different styles of documentary making. Um, and, and I think when people talk about HBO documentaries, they talk more often about the topic than necessarily the craft of, uh, of the filmmaking. And I wonder for you, what's the, what, what aspects of the craft of documentary making interest you the most? I'm not interested in sunsets. I can see those on postcards. Um, I think the story is the craft. I don't care if it's out of focus. I don't care if it's on a cell phone. I care that it's true, that it relates, that you never felt that feeling for anyone you didn't know before, and that it um, is a story you can follow, that it's not so complicated that you don't know that A comes before B and B comes before C. I don't really look at the craft. Maybe when I go to the ballet, I do, but not when I work on documentaries. I really look for the story. Well, in a way, that's craft too, right? Yeah. Sometimes someone will tell me that the camera work was beautiful or that, you know, I don't really know that. I'm I'm really, um, I mean, I'm not so stupid not to know if something's out of focus, but if at that unfocused moment something monumental is occurring, I'd rather have the monumental moment than the focus. It'd be nice to have both, of course, but, you know. Two years ago, Sheila's instincts drew her to a film that was an exquisite marriage of storytelling and craft. Here's a clip from the trailer. Laura, at this stage, I can offer nothing more than my word. I am a senior government employee in the intelligence community. I hope you understand that contacting you is extremely high risk. For now, know that every border you cross, every purchase you make, every call you dial, Every cell phone tower you pass, friend you keep, site you visit, and subject line you type is in the hands of a system whose reach is unlimited, but whose safeguards are not. In the end, if you publish the source material, I will likely be immediately implicated. I ask only that you ensure this information makes it home to the American public. Thank you, and be careful. Citizen 4. So I don't know, Ren, the thing about you. Okay. Um... I work for... Uh, sorry, I don't know who your name Oh, sorry. I, uh, my name is Edward Snowden. Uh, I go by Ed. Laura Poitras first broke Edward Snowden's story in 2013. She based herself in Berlin to avoid interference from the U.S. government. The next year, she completed the film Citizen Four, while U.S. officials continued to vilify Snowden, exiled in Russia. At the time, it felt like anyone who got involved with this film would be asking for trouble. Nevertheless, Sheila took it on, acquiring the broadcast rights while Radius handled theatrical. She needed to rally the backing of HBO CEO Richard Plepler. What was it like uh, taking the chance on that film? Um, That is such a great question because it happened right here in this room. They turned off all our phones. They took away our cell phones. By they, she means the film's representatives when they showed her a cut. I was scared, but I have had a great opportunity. I'm not, I didn't do all this myself. I have had a great opportunity at HBO. Um, and that's not to suck up to my bosses because I'm too old now to give a shit about that. But I have to say with Citizen Four, I called Richard Plepler 
And we, you know, duke out a lot of things, but we didn't duke this one out. After I saw this, and I was with Sarah Bernstein, and I couldn't breathe. It was so brilliant and complex, and Laura Potras is such a f***ing genius. I mean, she's such a genius. She made a mystery out of an interview, essentially. But I thought it was controversial, and I thought HBO could take it on. And when I called Richard, I think we even called that night, I can't remember, and I said, we have to buy this film. We didn't make it. I don't really, I had turned down a film of Laura's many years ago because she wanted to be in the theater and I wanted to go directly to television. You remember that fight went on for years and years. He said, if you really feel that, buy it. And we bought it for a lot of money. And we bought it that night because I felt it couldn't go elsewhere. I don't feel that very often. I'm happy to put myself on the line for something like that because it wasn't that I loved him or didn't love him, um, Snowden. It was that I knew it was an important film, that Laura was a breathtaking documentary filmmaker, and that the controversy was something that HBO could handle. And so it was a, you know, I forget that when I'm always bitching about something, but that was a gift. I don't know many places where that gift could happen. Sheila works closely with a team of supervising producers. Four of the longest serving are Nancy Abraham, Jackie Glover, Lisa Heller, and Sarah Bernstein. I asked how the team works together. I need them to test ideas. I'm surprised they need me sometimes, too. You know, like I say, do it yourself, you know? Um, but they want to know what I think, and I want to know what they think. And they're extremely supportive of each other. It's very unusual. I don't know as a younger person in this business I would have been as generous as they are to each other. I think I would have been a little more competitive. Uh, but I can't explain it. You'd have to ask them. They're very interesting women. Terribly smart. Each has a different gift. When a docu comes in or we come up with an idea or we buy something, it's usually assigned to the person who has the heartbeat of that docu. And um, I wonder if you can yeah. tease that out. Like but between Nancy, Lisa, Sarah, Jackie, what do you think are their specialties? Well, they'll specialties? kill me. Um, well, that's they all can do everything. Okay, let's get that out of the way. But I... Certain things, Sarah is of the moment. She's a hot property. She should be running a studio. Um, Nancy is very wise. They all have the same characters, but I use them for different, different things. Nancy doesn't give up on a story. I can give up and say, oh, it's just a mess. Let's just get out of it. I stayed up. I worried about Nancy will say, let's try a rough cut. You know, let me try that. She's just incredibly, um, I don't know what the word is. She's, she's just adamant about taking it to the end until it's dried out completely. I give up when it's still damp. Um, Jackie's so smart. She's so smart. And I can talk to her. And she's sensible about life. She doesn't give her life over to this crap called docus. She lives her life. She's devoted to docus. She has a balancing act that's miraculous to me. And Elisa is the greatest spinmeister in the world. I stole her from PBS because I said one day to some guy, I can't remember who's, why do your docus get so much attention and mine are not getting any attention? And he said, Lisa Heller. So a week later, I had breakfast with her across the street. And I lured her <laughs> into my lair. You should have to ask them. 
I know times in my 10 years of filmmaking when I would come to have a meeting with you, a pitch meeting, that meeting could make the difference between whether I was going to have my rent covered for the next 12 months or if I was going to have to go figure something else out, uh, you know, based on whether my idea clicked for you uh, or not. And, and you don't even hold it against me, Tom? <laughs> I've, I've, Tom, I've look at it this way. I don't have that power anymore. If I say, eh, you go over to Netflix. If I say, eh, eh, you go to Amazon. I mean, you know, you go to Hulu. You got a world. You go to Showtime. I'm, I'm the same person. I don't care. And I make mistakes. But I have to tell you that I say what I think. And I'm wrong sometimes. Mostly I'm right. Many times I'm wrong. So, you know, we started the ball rolling. So the ball is bigger than we are. So we get hit by the ball. So that's life. I don't mind. On November 21st, HBO will broadcast the documentary Marathon, The Patriots Day Bombing that follows people affected by the 2013 Boston Marathon attack. Here's a clip of a woman who was injured that day. Someone ran over to me and just said, you're on fire, you're on fire, and started to push me down on the ground. When they lifted me up, he put his hand on the stretcher, and I just remember him saying, we'll figure this out, and I love you. The filmmakers are Ricky Stern and Annie Sundberg, who previously made The Devil Came on Horseback about Darfur, and Joan Rivers, a piece of work about the comedian. I asked Sheila how the Marathon Project got started. I don't know. They were pitching us, and I, I had read the Times that day, and I noticed there was something about the marathon on, like, page 17 of Section 1, and I thought, why is a homegrown terrorism thing on page 17? Why isn't it on page 1? So I said to Ricky and Annie, because I've always wanted to work with them, because I didn't do the Joan Rivers one, and that was a mistake, and I felt, you know, they were good and... and so I said, I think there might be a story in the marathon, in the survivors. We never, we drop these things. We say, two people died, and we think, oh, well, two people died. But then you read 17 limbs, 20 this, two people are deaf, one person lost a child, and you wonder about the ramifications of it. And then the spirit of America, which is to run again. And um, that was the genesis for that. They did an extraordinary, I thought they did an extraordinary job on that film. Now, when you're working with all these different filmmakers, where do you think you bring your best talents to helping them guide their film? I think conceptually, I sometimes have good ideas, and they're usually um, colloquial and uh, mainstream. I'm not a sophisticated thinker in that way. I think I don't understand things a lot. I think my greatest gift is that I don't understand stuff. So that I, you know, how could that happen if that happened, you know? And it's annoyingly so, I think, to people, because other people seem to get it. Um, but I think I help it in the sense that I'm able to say, maybe that should go there and this should go there, because then you'd understand that. I think I have a clarity of thinking that is helpful when someone is so subjectively involved in telling a story. And sometimes it's very mundane, and sometimes it helps the audience. Because they're just regular people like me, you know, looking for a story. Well, and plus I fight hard. I really fight hard against um, not being able to do something that I think is going to be good. I mean, I really put myself on the line. And somehow I survive uh, so far.
I want to thank Sheila Nevins for speaking with me. That puts a wrap on season two of Pure Nonfiction. If you're in New York City, please come out for the Doc NYC Festival, featuring over 200 films and events from November 10th to 17th. Learn more at docnyc.net. We'll be back with season three in January, and maybe we'll squeeze in a bonus episode before then. You can catch up on our previous episodes with filmmakers like Werner Herzog, Ava DuVernay, and Barbara Koppel. Subscribe for free on iTunes so you don't miss a thing. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, web designer Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, social media maven Jordan Smith, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.